Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. You're back at our NBC Sports Charlotte studios. We are joined today by an author and longtime NASCAR journalist, Rick Houston. Rick, thanks for being here. Man, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're here, Rick, to talk first about a new book you have out called Dale versus Daytona, which is essentially every great American race, every Daytona 500 that Dale Earnhardt started 1979 through 2001. want to talk about that book to start off with, but also want to just tease people and let, let them know we're also going to be talking about Rick's coverage of the Bush series, uh, what was then... NASCAR scene, I guess Winston Cup scene. Also going to be talking about another book Rick has coming up about Dale Earnhardt's final Daytona 500. So going to get to all that. But first, we just want to start talking, Rick, about this book, Dale versus Daytona. I did some reading of this last night and this morning, so I've done a little bit of research. Where did you get the idea for this? Because obviously it it makes a lot of sense. I mean, Daytona National Speedway and, and the Daytona 500 was such a part of the Dale Earnhardt lore. When did it occur to you that, hey, this might make a lot of sense as a book? I don't know of any other driver other than maybe Richard Petty who is more closely associated with one track than Dale Earnhardt was with Daytona. For so long, he went down there uh, and tried to win the Daytona 500. And he had had so much success on the racetrack. He had won seven championships. He had won millions and millions and millions of dollars. Uh, he had won the Bud Shootout, the Bush Clash. He had won the qualifying races. He had won the IROC races. He had won the Bush Series race. And it was almost like the the, the racing gods had conspired to say, okay, <laughs> you've got all this other stuff, but we're not going to let you have the Daytona 500. You know, just, you're not going to have that one prize. And he lost it every single way that he could lose it. He flipped, he wrecked, he had bad races, he had bad pit stops. He, he very famously cut a tire on the last lap. Finally, in his 20th try, he finally won the race. And then three years later, he lost his life on the last lap of, of that event. And so, you know, it, it just seemed like a no-brainer mm-hmm. to, to write this book. And, and in a very real sense, the book wrote itself. Uh, you know, because there was just so much material out there to, and, and so many different people had so many different memories of him there. And it, it was a pleasure to write. You talked to a lot of people, some familiar names for NASCAR fans, I'm sure. His crew chiefs, Kirk Shelmerdine, Andy Petrie, Larry McReynolds, some of his famous pick crew members, such as Will Lind, Chocolate Myers, Bud Moore's son, Dale Earnhardt drove for Bud Moore, NASCAR Hall of Famer. I'm not sure how many people know about that. In a Ford. Yeah, in a Ford, <laughs> no less. Yeah, two starts for yeah. a, in a Ford for Dale Earnhardt in the Daytona 500 with Hall of Fame owner Bud Moore. What were some of your favorite interviews? What, what did you learn from those, those discussions? Asking about a favorite interview for this 
this book would, would be almost like asking a, about my favorite child <laughs> uh, because there were just so many different moments. I, I think to to Kirk Shelmerdine. And, you know, we've, we've heard so much about the 1990 Daytona 500 and how disappointed Dale was. But Kirk said that on that last lap when Dale was finally going to break through and finally won the Daytona 500 and going into the last lap, he was leading and he w- basically wasn't challenged from behind. And, of course, going into turn three, he cut the, he cut the tire and came around and I think he finished fifth. And Kirk Shelmerdine in the pitch looked at Richard Childress and said, boss, that's as close as I can get you. And you can only imagine what that moment must have felt like for him. And Kirk Shelmerdine said that in all his time at Richard Childress Racing, the very next day, the Monday after the Daytona 500, was the only sick day that he ever took. That's the kind of story that I love hearing about because, right. you know, most everybody knows the story of the 1990 Daytona 500. Dale Earnhardt dominates the race. He's going to win the Daytona 500. He cuts a tire, but they don't know the story about Kirk Shelmerdine. They don't know the story of Will Lind flying over the racetrack in the team plan on the way home and, and looking at the racetrack and saying, what have we got to do to win this thing? It, it's it's that kind of detail right. that, that kind of makes a book. That, of course, was uh, Dale Earnhardt's 12th attempt at winning the Daytona 500 in, in 1990, and it wouldn't be until 98, his 20th attempt, that, that he would finally win it. The story everybody knows about how Derek Cope wins the race when Earnhardt cuts the tire. But as you said, there, there's so many other backstories there. And what what I was really taken by was where Shelmerdine and, and Will Linder in there saying, oh, yeah, the, the car was cheated up. NASCAR was telling people, hey, you can come check this out. It, yeah. It's legal. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, we were really pushing the boundaries of the yeah. rules. I mean, they really thought they had the, the car that was going to beat all cars that year. Well, you know, I think by that time they were always the car to beat. Yeah. in Daytona until it came to the last lap of the Daytona 500. They just had that sense about them that when they went to Daytona, they were going to be the car to beat, whether it was in the preliminary races. You know, that was, that was almost a given. He, yeah. he was going to win that race unless, yeah. you know, he blew up or whatever. But going into the Daytona 500, they had to have this sense, this shell-shocked, you know, what's going to happen next? Uh, the very next year in 1991, they hit a seagull <laughs> on the second lap of the race. And and it's not a little bitty Tweety Bird either. It's this big, <laughs> big honking bird that, that leaves this big hole in their, in their grill. And it's a parachute, you know, until they make their first stop. You have to think that they did feel like they were snake bit. In the course of doing this research, Rick, I, you've obviously heard, we've all heard these stories about it you know, almost seems as if there were greater forces conspiring to keep Dale Earnhardt from winning this race. As you did the research for the book, did it become evident to you that, wow, there really was something that prevented <laughs> from winning the first 19 tries at well, this race? I, I don't know that I, I believe in racing gods or, or racing luck or anything like that, but I, I, I did get the sense of just how hard it was to win the Daytona 500, even for a Dale Earnhardt. That's not an easy race. And that's just how big a prize it was for somebody like Dale Earnhardt to covet it so yeah. much. And, you know, I, I had a few people say, try to, you know, downplay how much he wanted it. No, he, 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 he wanted that race. Yeah. You know, just, you know, once he finally did win it, 
to see his reaction, yeah, he wanted it. In the introduction, Rick, you, you talked about at the time you were working for Winston Cup scene, which yes. how long did you work there? Uh, I worked there from November 1st of 94 until or August of 2003, so okay. about nine years. In the introduction of this book, Rick, you told this great story about the 1997 Daytona 500, the year before Earnhardt won. You, know, you talk about that unquenchable desire to, to win this race. You, you said you were in, in the pits as Earnhardt pulled in and, and got out, and you saw that look on his face of having lost this race for the 19th straight year, what it, what it was like. Well, actually, I was on pit road as he came, as he drove down after flipping. The look that he had on his, his face that day as he drove down pit road after flipping his car, that was Dale. And I can remember it to this day. I mean, I get chills thinking of it now. He had his helmet off. Uh, you could see the imprint of his goggles, old school goggles on his face. And he had this look of just laser intensity but disappointment. It wasn't necessarily anger. It wasn't necessarily we're going to come back and finish this race and win this race or whatever, but it was a profound disappointment. That day I saw not the intimidator, but I saw Dale. And that was that was kind of a cool moment to see past the veil, so to speak. Yeah. The early parts of Earnhardt's career, I was somewhat unaware. Again, I think everybody knows like the 1990 story of Derek Cope, or as you mentioned, 91 with the, the, the Seagull, or, but I was unaware of, say, that second year in 1980 when yeah. it really was just, and he, Dale Earnhardt was that good that early in the draft that really it was just a, a, a slow pit stop in 1980 that, that cost him that yeah. the Daytona 500. Buddy Baker came in for a splash of gas, and that was it. Earnhardt's crew chief, Suitcase Jake Elder right. uh, insisted on putting on tires. Uh, Buddy Baker's pit stop took six seconds, I believe. Dale Earnhardt's pit stop took 20, 25 seconds, and there's the race. And to make matters worse, they had to come in the next time. I, I, I don't know if they'd had lugs loose or, or, or what the issue was that time, but they came in. They had to come in a second time the next lap, and, and that, that ended their race. And so, you know, Dale Earnhardt's day disappointments in the Daytona 500, I mean, they started right from the very start. And he, he was unhappy about it after the race. He was already Dale Earnhardt in the news media. <laughs> he was saying, we had a slow pit stop and, you know, yeah. we could have won the race. And I always thought it was kind of funny that on the second pit stop, he actually ran over Jake Elder's foot. <laughs> <laughs> whether whether or not that was intentional or not, I, I don't know. But This being a bygone era 37 years ago when crew chiefs were on the over-the-wall crew that we changed. Oh, yeah, absolutely, right? yeah. absolutely. The research you did and the people you talked to, Rick, I mean, we've heard the stories about, you know, Darren Hart could see the air, that, that he was just so good in the draft and just understood ahead of time how to make those chess moves that you have to make to win a restrictor plate race. What did you learn in the course of writing the book about why he was so good at Daytona from the very outset? As time developed, there was just a mystique about Dale Earnhardt at Daytona. And I think Dale played that up. I think he took full advantage of that. And when he went on the racetrack, he knew that he was the guy and he took advantage of that. He had people following him uh, when otherwise they would have been trying to get around him. He, he had people follow him in the draft uh, and gave him more respect on the racetrack in the draft than they would have given somebody else. They tried to learn from him. They watched him on the track. And I think he knew that. Those early starts driving for Bud Moore, what did you find about, like, you know, what led 
him into that Bud Moore partnership. Well, I thought it was kind of funny, first of all, when he left Rod Osterland uh, midway through the uh, 1981 season, that there was a lot of concern over whether or not he was going to be able to take the number two with him. I mean, people were just up in air about <laughs> about Del Earnhardt and the number two. And that just seems, you know, obviously yeah. so strange now, looking back on it, how closely associated he is with the number three. Sure. You know, I, I had to laugh when I saw that in an old uh, issue of Grand National, Grand National Illustrated. The deal with Bud Moore, it, it was a ride, and it was a solid ride, you know, because at that time Bud Moore was one of the, one of the top teams in the garage. And I always thought it was interesting that at the end of that two-year deal with Bud, uh, Junior Johnson had actually signed Wrangler and Dale and was going to fire Darrell Walter to put Dale in the 11 car. Things happened, and, and Budweiser came back and, and offered him a lot more money, and the deal fell through. But think about that possibility. Right. Think about right. think about you know, Junior Johnson firing Dale, uh, Darrell Waltrip and putting Dale Earnhardt in his car. I mean, uh, <laughs> you, you know, in some ways, right? number, number one, what would have happened to Richard Childress? You know, because we, we know him as a Hall of Famer now. Uh, we know him as, as Dell Earnhardt's right-hand man, best friend, hunting partner, the whole nine yards. Uh, junior had cores as, as the sponsor of a second team for Neil Bonnet. So what would have happened to Bill Elliott? That, that's one of the stories, many intriguing stories that, that I found for the book. I mean, it was a different era then, really, right? I mean, drivers and owners had contracts then, but it was probably a lot different than, than what we know as the, the, the more structured environment that we see in 21st century NASCAR. And, and Dale, Dale really wanted to drive for Junior uh, because Junior at the time, he was pretty much the kingmaker. He was the Hendrick Motorsports of, of that era. Uh, he, he was the operation, you know, Earnhardt you know, had a lot of respect for him. Now, I have a big question how well that would have worked out because obviously they were both extremely hard-headed. Uh, that would have been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Strong-willed individuals, which is what made them successes in NASCAR. Where, where would you, if you had to rank the losses that Dale Earnhardt had in the Daytona 500, Rick, is, is there a way that you could do it or are there a top five? I mean, obviously 1990 would be high on that list. Is there, are there ones that stand out to you or maybe that stand out to you even more after you did the book? I would say obviously as, as close as he was and as dominant as he was that day, that 1990 would be the very top. I, I would say 1986 would be in the top five as well because he and Jeff Bodine had, had been so strong late in the race. Of course, at that time, Dale and Jeff were, were kind of the, the rival, the hard-headed Yankee and the hard-headed Southern guy. Uh, going at it on the racetrack, and they'd bumped into each other before, and they would certainly bump into each other, wreck each other, you know, several times, you know, after that uh, in the next year or two. The 1997 Daytona 500, you know, when he flipped, obviously I think the Seagull would be in the mix as well. But what what people don't really remember about that race is is people think that that, that ended his day. It didn't. He actually led uh, several laps after that, came back, uh, got black flagged, uh, for blending up too high, uh, too soon onto the racetrack, uh, and then was uh, racing with Davey Allison and Ernie Irvin for the lead uh, with about 10 laps to go and got together with Davey, and they both crashed. So, you know, those those would be my four. As as far as a fifth one, I would, I would go back to 1980. 
because he he was so good uh, and going against Buddy, uh, and they had basically similar driving styles. That would have been fun to watch, definitely. That seems like one that so probably not a lot of people realize how close he was in year two. Yeah. To, to winning. Yeah. yeah. And and that's what that's what I think is kind of cool about this book is, you know, people know the 1990 story and they know the 97 story and 98 story and that kind of thing. But there's a lot of detail in the other chapters that, that are going to kind of jog people's memories. Another detail that I was in, intrigued by, I believe it was 81, where Earnhardt wasn't in the clash, but he was in the broadcast yeah. booth. Dale Earnhardt joins, I guess at the time, was the CBS booth, which, of course, now, in retrospect, seems really intriguing because his son, Dale Earnhardt Jr., of course, will be a part of the NBC Sports broadcasting coverage next year. Did people say, hey, this this could have been a potential career for Dale Earnhardt? Would TV have made sense, do you think, long term? I don't work in this business full time anymore, so I don't have to be politically correct. Mm-hmm. It would have taken quite a bit of polish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For Dale to have made it as a broadcaster, I think I think obviously anybody, uh, I think they uh, could have valued uh, his input. But but that day, uh, yeah, it probably would have taken a little bit of polish. Uh, I think if I remember correctly, listening to the broadcast of, of that race, it was almost like he was racing to the finish li- finish line himself because he kind of bumped uh, his broadcast mates out of the way and kind of called the finish himself. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound like Dale Earnhardt at all. <laughs> <laughs> he said, listen, boys, I'm calling this. You, you guys get out of the way. He he definitely had some strong opinions about uh, the smaller car that they had that year. And that was the new shorter yeah, wheelbase, 5x5 yeah. five five inches. And yeah. Bobby Allison had his famous Pontiac Le Mans and, and that kind of thing. And that was very controversial that year. So he had some things to say about it as well. But, yeah, I think it would have taken some polish. So the, the book winds up, Rick, Dale versus Daytona, of course, tragically, with the final Daytona 500, which was the 2001 Daytona 500. Dale Earnhardt crashes and loses his life on the final lap of that race, which is won by Michael Waltrip and the Dale Earnhardt Incorporated car. Just confluence of, like, so many events that now you are writing a book about that race. That, that race, you know, changed so much. And... To this day, there are so many people that I feel so badly about in that whole confluence of events. Just from the outset, you think about Michael Waltrip. He had raced 460-some-odd, I think it was, races, had never come close to winning. To to finally break into victory lane in the Daytona 500, I mean, it almost breaks my heart that it be tarnished. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have anything tarnished that. I felt bad for Junior because Junior basically was just a kid. He was just a kid driving a race car, wanting his daddy's approval. And all of a sudden, the world came crashing down upon him, and the expectations of the NASCAR world were in his lap. He didn't ask for that. And nothing pisses me off more than for somebody to to get on Twitter or Facebook or whatever and, and say that he was just riding on his daddy's coattails. That's crap. His daddy was tough on him. His daddy was tough on Kerry. His daddy was tough on Kelly. And it, it, it put Dale Jr. in an impossible position. And I, I respect every move that he's made since then. It made me feel, in, in the research that I've done for the, the second book, it, it made me feel for Gary Nelson. It made me feel uh, for Bill Simpson. Uh, Bill Simpson has saved more lives in, in motorsports than any 500 safety workers, and yet he had the world come crashing down around him. Gary Nelson 
had the world come crashing down around him. There was there was nothing anybody could do. And and all the and all this noise and the fact was nobody knew what had happened. It it wasn't it certainly wasn't that anybody killed Dale Earnhardt on purpose. That's the last thing you wanted to happen. In front of God and everybody and on on Fox in their first race. Interesting to, to reflect on that because, I mean, you're right. Bill Simpson, of course, his company was the maker of safety belts and the Dale Earnhardt crash. They found afterward that one of the, the safety belts apparently had, had torn. And Gary Nelson, as you mentioned, was at the time the, the series director for Winston Cup. And there was all this discussion afterward about were the front ends too rigid in the cars. And as you said, they look, yeah. I, there were a lot of people looking for blame, obviously, or yeah. culpability and, and where to direct it in the wake of the death of this icon and it's interesting to me to sit here and reflect on it now and think about well this was just the last chapter of an odyssey between man and racetrack dale versus daytona it feels like it was part of this just wide sweeping narrative of uh, over two decades well i think because of of what happened on the last lap he will always 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 be part of the mythology of that place i I don't want to say you you always feel his presence there but it it was different it'll always be different going back there i I know i felt different going there i i I feel i feel a certain reverence for that place just i don't want to equate it to gettysburg or any place like that but you know that that was a place that he cared very deeply about you know because you know it had been such a big part of his life and he had he had done he had done everything that he could to win that race, and he cared so deeply about it. And then to have it all end like it did, I, you know, there's just no way to explain it. How, how, how and why does it happen that way? The book, of course, let's just make sure to tell people where you can get it. Uh, Dale versus Daytona, is it available online? Or oh, yeah. Uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. 2001 Daytona 500 book. Does that have a working title or is that? Uh, I believe the working title is Black Sunday, uh, the day that forever changed NASCAR. You covered the Bush series for Winston Cup scene, and I have also written a book about the Bush series, uh, Second to None, that came out, what, about 15 years ago or so? Yeah. <laughs> It came out September the 1st of 2001. There was no way that I was going to get on an airplane after 9-11. Uh, there was no way that I was going to get uh, miss my first book signing. So I drove to Olathe, Kansas uh, for the race. Oh, wow. Uh, that at the end of the month uh, in September and wound up going to the book signing at a Barnes & Noble and one person bought my book. <laughs> <laughs> Worth the fifteen yeah, to twenty yeah, hour drive yeah, or whatever. Yeah, it was yeah. it was nine hundred and seventy five miles from my driveway <laughs> to the racetrack. In the years prior to that, when you were covering the Bush series, of course, you covered Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s nineteen ninety eight and nineteen ninety nine titles. What was it like? Obviously, you were just speaking passionately about how people had, I think, unfortunately, incorrect impressions about his views on on racing and everything like that. What was it like covering him in those those first two seasons when he really burst onto the scene? Dale Jr is nothing but a genuine, sincere guy. My wife uh, had a miscarriage in November of 98, and I had to miss the last race of the year at Homestead. And Dale Jr. called us from the racetrack, and he said, you know, I I heard what happened, Rick. I'm sorry. You know, I know that you've been trying to get up with me, you know, to talk, you know, for the paper and all that. Don't worry about that. Whenever you get clear all the doctors, you know, do what you got to do with them, and then, you know, my time will be yours, and we'll meet whatever you know whenever so you know just take care of what you got to do and my wife heard that message on the answer machine she said i'm going to that interview 
And so the three of us, however long later, uh, went to went to dinner at this little place in Mooresville. I guess Junior and I talked maybe 30, 45 minutes on the record. And then I, I thought for sure he would jet. And he stuck around for another hour, you know, just chatting like you and I are. And he wouldn't have left then, but he had to, <laughs> I'll never forget, it. He, he had to go to Matt Kenseth's house because he was going to meet a girl to take to the Bush Series banquet. <laughs> he said, I'm going to look like a dork if I don't have a date to the banquet. <laughs> and, you know, he was just, he was just junior, you know, and you were able to joke with him at the racetrack. You know, he came into the media center one time in St. Louis and was yelling at me and where's that, where's that piece of crap newspaper that you write for that? You could just rag with him like that. But I also had a lot of respect for him on the racetrack. You know, he, he got hurt at Milwaukee, uh, broke his shoulder blade at Milwaukee during practice and Milwaukee, uh, we ran Milwaukee in July at the time. It, it was so hot. Nate, I don't guess I've ever been so hot in my life. But he, he broke his shoulder blade one day and came back and finished third the next day in the seats that they had at that time. You know, so, he, yeah, he can drive a race car. Yeah, people forget about yeah. that toughness when, yeah. when he gets questioned nowadays yeah. Yeah. so far in his And when he got out of the race car, he, he literally looked like he was melting. Well, everybody did, but, you know, him particularly because he had – he was basically falling out of the seat and still finished third. I was doing some research, Rick, and I, I guess I'd forgotten that year he won the championship in 98 was his first full season. He was, a, I mean, yeah. he was virtually a rookie in the Bush Series that year. He'd, he'd run, but he'd made some starts in 97. Hadn't realized this until I went back and looked. I mean, the first Bush race I ever covered was 1997 at Fontana. And he was making, at the time, it was some fledgling team. I can't even remember the name of it. Maybe like... MDM or something like that, motorsports, something like that. And I guess I'd forgotten that he, he wasn't a sure thing. I mean, and maybe people don't realize that now 20 years later, but it wasn't as if, hey, he's got the last name and automatically he's going to get the really good ride from his dad at, at DEI or whatever. Like he had to he had to earn that. Well, and again, he honestly believed at one time that he was going to spend the rest of his life uh, changing oil at his daddy's Chevrolet de- dealership. He started racing at Myrtle Beach with, with Kelly uh, and Kerry, uh, worked on his own race cars. Nobody handed him anything. Uh, you know, you're not, as a journalist, you're not supposed to pull for anybody, and I, I don't pull for him necessarily, but if he wins, it's, you know, there's a story there, and there's a good story there, you know, because, you know, just because of everything that, that he's faced over the, over the course of his career. You know, he he wasn't handed everything on a silver platter like everybody believes. It's been a pleasure having you here, Rick. I just want to give a little bit more of a shout out to some of your other work. I know that you've also written not just NASCAR. You also have a a fascination with NASA. (laughs) And um, you've written some books about Apollo missions as well. Uh, I have. I have written a book uh, on the space shuttle program called Will Stop. The Tragedies and Triumphs of the Space Shuttle Program. That led into a book on uh, the people who worked in mission control called Go Flight, The Unsung Heroes of Mission Control. And that turned into a documentary film that was just released on Netflix yesterday. Uh, that's called Mission Control, The Unsung Heroes of Apollo. Terrific. Very well, proud of that. Dale versus Daytona, out now. And Black Sunday is certainly something for people to look for. And uh, really appreciate you coming by and sharing all these stories, Rick. No problem, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate Rick Houston joining us. And thanks to Carrie Gilbert for helping set that up. As you could tell, we taped that a few months ago, hence the references to next year that actually meant this year. I initially thought I'd have room for it last year, 
but I had some other guests pop up, and it seemed to make sense to hold this episode for Daytona Week, and I'm glad that we did. This is the 20th anniversary year of Dale Earnhardt's lone win in the Daytona 500, and 1998 was his 20th attempt at the Great American Race. I'm sure we're going to hear much more about that during Speed Weeks in the run-up to next Sunday's 60th Daytona 500 at Daytona International Speedway. So it seemed very appropriate to have Rick Houston to share some of those stories that he collected for an exhaustively researched book. I certainly would encourage you to check it out. Dale vs. Daytona, The Intimidator's Quest to Win the Great American Race is the title of the book. And I don't have a timeline or a release date, but you might want to keep an eye out for the other book that Rick mentioned that he is working on about Dale Earnhardt's final Daytona 500. But in the meantime, Dale vs. Daytona, The Intimidator's Quest to Win the Great American Race, available wherever you can find books. Speaking of Daytona, while I'm taping this, I'm in Florida and preparing to head to Daytona tomorrow morning for the first time in 2018. If you're hearing this Friday morning, and if you are, thanks for being the most loyal of listeners, I'll be doing a Facebook Live from the track of the Cup Garage opening at 10 a.m. on Friday. NBCSports.com colleague Dustin Long and I will have daily coverage of Speed Weeks. Check out NBCSports.com slash NASCAR for all of our coverage. My shameless shilling in the last episode worked as the NASCAR and NBC podcast surpassed 100 ratings on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much to those of you who have done ratings and reviews. If you haven't, please feel free to leave us one. That really helps spread the word. Or if you prefer, just tell your friends that you like what you're hearing and encourage them to subscribe as well. The NASCAR NBC podcast also is available on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and pretty much wherever you can download podcasts. And if you have any feedback, please send it to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.